One of the most famous conversion stories of the 21st century is that of Nabil Qureshi. Nabil was born in California as a citizen of Pakistani immigrants who fled religious persecution at the hands of fellow Muslims. His parents were devout members of the peaceful Ahmadi sect of Islam, which differs from Orthodox Islam, Islam on some minor doctrines, but shares with it a belief in the six articles of faith and holds to the five pillars of Islam. Nabil's family was the most loving and tightly knit family that he knew, and it was entirely centered on Islam which formed the framework and blueprint of his life. His mother taught him Urdu and Arabic before he learned English at the age of four. And by the age of five, he had read the entire Quran in Arabic and had memorized many chapters. His parents also trained him in apologetics so that he would not only believe in Islam, but could defend it and refute other religions like Christianity. In 2001, in college, Nabil observed a fellow student, David Wood, reading the Bible in his free time. Nabil regularly read the Quran, but it struck him as odd to see a Christian reading the Bible on his own. Nabil challenged David's belief in Christianity, beginning with the charge that the Bible had been corrupted over time. Wood aspired to be a Christian apologist, and the two young men formed a friendship and engaged in debate that lasted for several years. In working through David's arguments and examining the evidence for himself, Nabil eventually became convinced of the general reliability of the New Testament. So he next raised the objection that Jesus never claimed to be God. After being shown this was untrue, Nabil challenged David that Jesus had never died on the cross. Again, by being willing to investigate the evidence, Nabil changed his mind. It was now two and a half years later and Nabil raised the greatest stumbling block for accepting Christianity. How could one man die for another man's sins? And how could the one true God be a trinity? He was now reading the Bible and considering Christ's claims for himself. In return, David began to challenge Nabil's confidence in the claims of Islam. Intellectually, Nabil held to Islam for several subjective reasons, like the kind of life it produced. But objectively, the central claim was that Islam was true because Muhammad was a true prophet of God. But after studying primary sources and biographies, Nabil eventually concluded that he could not reasonably hold to the idea that Muhammad is the greatest of prophets and history's most perfect man. From December 2004 to April 2005, Nabil experienced three vivid dreams that strongly suggested to him that Christianity is true and that Christ should be followed. Later that year, he traveled to Washington, D.C., Canada, and England to search out knowledgeable Muslims who could answer the arguments against Islam that he had encountered. I had various replies running the gamut from terribly unconvincing to fairly innovative, and I encountered people that ranged from sincere to condescendingly caustic. At the end of my research, the arguments for and against Islam still hung in the balance, but one thing was abundantly clear. They were far from approaching the strength of the case for Christianity. Nabil described his final conversion to Christ while a medical student and the effect it had on his world this way. He said, I began mourning the impact of the decision I knew I had to make. On the first day of my second year of medical school, it became too much to bear. Yearning for comfort, I decided to skip school. Returning to my apartment, I placed the Quran and the Bible in front of me. I turned to the Quran, but there was no comfort there. 
For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my suffering, irrelevant to my life. It felt like a dead book. With nowhere left to go, I opened the New Testament and started reading. Very quickly, I came to the passage that said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Electric. The words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I could not put the Bible down. I began reading fervently, reaching Matthew 10, 37, which taught me that I must love God more than my mother and father. But Jesus, I said, Accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. The next verses spoke to me saying, he who does not take his, take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was being very blunt. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I loved most in this world were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made, and it is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. But Jesus is the God of reversal and redemption. He redeemed sinners to life by his death. And he redeemed a symbol of execution by repurposing it for salvation. He redeemed my suffering by making me rely upon him for my every moment, bending my heart toward him. It was there in my pain that I knew him intimately. He reached me through investigations, dreams, and visions, and called me to prayer in my suffering. It was there that I found. Jesus. To follow him is worth giving up everything. Nabil went on to become a gifted apologist and international speaker. He authored the New York Times bestseller, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And then Nabil died of cancer in 2017 at the age of 34. One of the most famous conversion stories of the 21st century. And what transpires in our text today is the most famous conversion story in all of church history. And it's not merely about an unlikely convert. It's about the most unlikely one. And it's not just someone of a different faith coming to faith, but a terrorist of Christians coming to the faith putting faith in Christ. Tony Merida said of this, only a miraculous change could take the guy that's the terrorist in one chapter and turn him into the evangelist of the next. That's what we see happen in our text. The hunter has become the hunted. The wolf attempting to crush the church is chased down by the hound of heaven. The arrester of Christians becomes arrested by Jesus on that road to Damascus. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at four lessons from the conversion of Saul the terrorist who would become Paul the apostle. Now I get a lot of what happens in Saul's conversion story is pretty extraordinary, right? Some unique things. He was blinded by the glorious light of God. Uh, he, he audibly hears the voice of Jesus, sees Jesus, is blinded for multiple days, right? All of that stuff going on. And yet, there are things that we can learn about our faith generally 
that apply to all of us through our text. And so that's what we're going to look in at. And here's the first thing we learn. First, God can save the worst of sinners. Let me read the first few verses here. But Saul, chapter 9, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's looking for arrest warrants and he gets them. And then he's, he's chasing after people who are of the way, which was the earliest name for Christians because they believed in the one who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And now, as he went on his way, verse 3, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. What happens in this text is a terrorist of the church is met with the glory of God on a road. Christ's display of patience, kindness, grace towards Saul is meant to be an encouraging example to us. Last week, I told you the story of a former coworker of mine who one week was angrily opposed to Christianity and open to it the next due to a spiritual experience that he had in the days between. Look, the story of Saul's conversion should remind us never to write anyone off as being beyond hope. Not even you. And not even those that you don't particularly like, that you struggle to be around, that, that really seem to oppose Christianity, we should be reminded to never write anyone off as being beyond hope. The Bible's clear that God can reach anyone. And that's what's so amazing about grace. John Newton was the captain of a slave trading ship before he became a pastor. And he was actually referred to as the African blasphemer. Yet after his conversion, he eventually became a pastor. And in his later years, he came to feel intense remorse for his, for his participation in the slave trade as a sea captain for slave traders. And he went on to join William Wilberforce and be a catalyst in William Wilberforce opposing slavery. To the end of his life, John Newton was still marveling that he was saved and that he was called to preach the gospel of grace. Here's what John Newton wrote at the end of his life as his last will and testament. I commit my soul to my gracious God and Savior who mercifully spared and preserved me when I was an apostate, a blasphemer, and an infidel and delivered me from the state of misery on the coast of Africa into which my obstinate wickedness had plunged me and who has been pleased to admit me, though most unworthy, to preach his glorious gospel. John Newton is most famously known for writing a particular song. He wrote many songs, but the most famous of them being Amazing Grace. And the first lines go like this, Amazing Grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Look, first, God can save the worst of sinners. Second, the savior of the world identifies with you. Look at verse four. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And Saul said, who are you, Lord? Which, which in this context is probably just, he's using his manners. It's like calling someone sir. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul discovers that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. At once Saul must have grasped from the extraordinary way in which Jesus identified with his followers so that to persecute them was to persecute him. Saul now understood the spiritual unity between the Savior and the saints. Do you grasp it? I mean, Saul in, in that moment grasped that. Saul would go on to become the Apostle Paul and to write much of the New Testament and describe wondrously about Christ and his bride, the church, and the relationship between Jesus and those who are his. Do you grasp it? That's what your union with Christ is like, so intimate that for you to be persecuted, for the church to be persecuted, is for Jesus himself to be persecuted. That's how much he identifies with you. Listen, you are not alone in your suffering. This text reminds us of that. He experiences it as his own. And he is your ever-present help. Not only does he experience it with you, because he identifies so that deeply with you, but he's the king enthroned in heaven and is able to work in the midst of that. He meets you there and he cares. The savior of the world identifies with you. Third, the family of faith is a radically gracious and loving community. We're gonna jump down to verse 17 where it says, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is just incredible, right? Because Ananias likely knew people killed at the hands of Saul. Right? The Christian community is very small at this point. Saul likely knew those who were made widows and orphans because of Saul. Or sorry, Ananias likely knew people who had become widows and orphans because of what Saul had done. And Ananias likely had friends who had been arrested by Saul. So it's no wonder, like we see earlier in the text, that he had trepidation about going to this Saul. It's like, Lord, really? I've heard he's done this and this. And yet with all that trepidation, he was still obedient. So what we see next is that what were likely the first words Saul heard from the lips of a Christian after his conversion were words of familial welcome. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. What a welcome. William Barclay wrote, it is one of the sublimest examples of Christian love. That is what Christ can do. The killer of Christians becomes a brother in the church. I mean, it's just so gospel. And so I don't want this to be lost on us. Listen, to be the household of God is to be a gospel-formed people, to be a people marked by Christian love, a family modeling radical grace and radical love. I think like, 
as I've been studying this, I've needed to be reminded of that in these divisive times. And I think we all do. The, the, the family of God is our brothers and sisters in Christ that we come towards in love and graciously. It's so tempting in our moment to say, you think differently than I do on this. Therefore, you're other. Therefore, you're outsider. Therefore, I, I banish you. I, I want to get away from you. I don't relate to you. No, 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 no. I mean, does it get any further than Ananias being like, I don't want to go to him. You want me to go to him? He's arresting and killing followers of the way. And God's like, yes, go, go. I think we need to have that posture. We need to be reminded of what the household of faith really is. We come towards with such Christian love, gospel grace. We see each other as brother and sister. Let's let this text remind us of Christ's beautiful and difficult vision for the church. Ananias' obedience to the call of God and, and his gospel posture towards Saul winds up changing the course of history. I mean, leading to the most famous conversion, like I said, and the greatest missionary, the Apostle Paul, in all of church history. See, Ananias, though, is, is really one of the forgotten heroes of the Christian church. Look, we all know who C.S. Lewis is and Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. Well, those who led them to Christ are mostly anonymous and forgotten. And Ananias is a, is a forgotten hero in many ways, and he, he probably wanted it that way. I was told the other day by a father that my influence on his son changed the trajectory of his life. Now, I don't say that to puff myself up. I say that because my reaction to that was, me? What grace? Me? What grace? Because I'm, I'm a reluctant, selfish, often brash man. But, but Jesus has gotten a hold of my life and uses my moments of obedience for his kingdom purposes. And the same is true of you. Jesus loves to use your obedience and gospel-formed life for his eternal purposes. I'm just a beggar who's become convinced that the greatest thing I can do with my life is show other beggars where I have found bread. Oh, my friends, what a privilege it is to be the household of God, foibles and all, called to live for God, called to love God and love and be gracious toward each other and press into our common mission together. The family of faith is a radically gracious and loving community. Fourth, your, conver uh, your conversion leads to a costly call. I'm going to jump back to verse 15. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, because Ananias is like, are you sure? Because I know about this guy. And the Lord's response is, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, all of that would become true. 
Saul would go on to be Christ's chosen instrument as the apostle to the Gentiles, to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. We'll see all of that transpire in the book of Acts. He would also go on to suffer greatly for the gospel. And I do not want you to miss that. Before, before Ananias even gets to Saul, Jesus is already telling him, I've got a plan for Saul and it involves suffering. It's going to be hard. Yes, you need to go to him because I have a plan for him, which includes suffering. You need to hear this because many people view Christianity this way. If, if I'm faithful to God, then this stuff over here will happen in my life. Now, that's a formula, not the gospel. We don't act faithfully to God because it will get us everything we want. We, we act faithfully to God because God is worth following. We obey God because he is worthy of our obedience. See, so many people get disenfranchised with Christianity because they've placed expectations on it that it never promised to deliver on. Many of us have been sold a bill of goods that if I do X, Y, and Z, then God will give me fill in the blank, a comfortable life, ease, prosperity, a life void of suffering and pain and loss. But our response to that kind of an idea should be no. Look, right after Peter confesses Jesus as the son of God, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Like I said, before Saul's even really commissioned, the plan is already you will suffer for the gospel. A.J. Swoboda put it this way, follow Jesus. It's going to destroy your life. It's not going to lead to happiness. It is going to lead to Jesus. And that, at the end of the day, is worth spending your life dying to follow. Look, here's the truth. A, a, a great deal of our faith is doing the difficult thing, not the easy thing. A great deal of our faith is doing the difficult thing, not the easy thing, like Ananias did. He did the difficult thing, not the easy thing, by going to Saul. Saul would become the apostle Paul and would later go on to do the difficult thing, not the easy thing, over and over again. Again, I refer to William Barclay who wrote, the Christian is a man who has ceased to do what he wants to do and has begun to do what Christ wants him to do. And some of you need to hear that. Look, there's only one kind of Christianity, and it's the kind where we take up our cross and follow Jesus, like Nabil Qureshi did. Whatever the cost, a call to die. Lives submitted to his will. Lives submitted to his plans. And a sober realization that living for Christ will bring more hardship, not less. And yet you get God. The one for whom you were created for, the one for whom you were made. And along with him, you get strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. One of the biggest pieces of pastoral advice that I give to people who are in a challenging circumstances is, is just like, choose faithfulness today. 
Don't look to next week. Don't look to next month. Don't look to next year. You're called to faithfulness today. Look, trust Jesus in this right now, today. Lean on Jesus today. And can I just tell you, nothing, nothing on the planet compares with that. This passage ends with Saul's conversion, receiving the Holy Spirit and being baptized. In Paul's retelling of his own conversion, which he does in Acts 22 and later in Acts as well, we see that at this point, Ananias said to him, now why do you wait? He's, he's been given his sight back. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. What a story. The same man that was headed to Damascus to persecute Christians was getting baptized upon the profession of his faith. The man who was headed to Damascus to persecute Christians was blinded on the road there and needed to be led by the hand into Damascus. And now he was being drawn into the waters of baptism. The same mouth that had just been breathing out murderous threats was now breathing out praises and prayers to Christ. This, my friends, is the gospel. This is what gospel, a, a life captured and transformed by the gospel looks like. Now, as we close, I just want to summarize with this. Um, Paul, Saul, I should say, Saul was zealous. He was a religious fanatic. Later on, as the apostle Paul, he would pen in multiple places that he was the chief of sinners, the worst sinner he knew. And so just, I want to leave you with one last thing. The, the excuses of I'm too bad on the one hand, and I'll count on my religious efforts to save me on the other, are, are both disproven, dismantled by our text today. Listen, you're not too bad. You're not too damaged for Jesus to love and embrace you. He is patient towards you and he calls you to himself. It might be time for your Damascus Road experience. It'll look different, but the result is meant to be the same, that you surrender your life to Jesus and enter the waters of baptism. On the other hand, look, your righteous deeds can't save you. Only Jesus can. Saul was deeply religious, and yet he was still in desperate need of salvation. The salvation that is only found in Jesus. Have you been counting on your works, your righteousness, your constant attempts to be on the right side of history? You can only find salvation in Jesus and he would love to embrace you. So wherever you're at, this passage reminds you, you're the ideal candidate for grace. After all, Jesus took a terrorist ravaging the church and gave him a testimony of his grace. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, this passage of scripture, it sings, it soars 
Thank you, Jesus, for arresting Saul on the road to Damascus that day. It's so instructive for us. This text just drips of sovereign grace. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for all of the things we can learn from this text. Lord, I pray that we would all take something, at least, from this text, from your word, from this sermon. Take something and apply it. And let a truth just sink down deep into our hearts. Thank you for the love that we don't deserve. Thank you for the reminder that you can take a terrorist and give him a testimony. We praise you and we thank you. Amen.